Hey, my name is Chad. I'm the pastor here. If you're brand new, we are glad that you're here today. And today we actually finish up a series called Life Hacks. Now, if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know we have defined life hacks in a very specific way. We've said life hacks are simple or clever tips or techniques for accomplishing familiar tasks. And so over the past few weeks, we've talked about hacking time and stress, decisions, money, marriage slash sex. Last week, Daniel did a great job talking about health. But today we're going to talk about, I think, the hack that brings all of these things together. That if we really want to see our lives change, if we really want to be different people, if we want our relationships to be different than they are right now, this is the hack that we've got to focus on more than any other. <clears throat> so over the next few moments, we're going to talk about hacking God. All right? Today we are going to hack God. Because I wonder sometimes if the hacks that we try to put in place, if they don't work because we really have this, this struggle with God. Like there's this tension that, that's there with with God. What if God is the reason we don't change? Or what if God is the reason we think we can't change? Or what if the reason that these hacks aren't happening in our lives is because our relationship with God is, is kind of broken? And so this morning, I want to talk about hacking God. And, and really, more than that, talk about faith. Some of you in here, you've ever done the trust fall before? You know the trust fall? Maybe you did it at a business retreat, uh, in school, in camp. You have a group of people standing behind this individual and, and they close their eyes, and kind of put their hands up and you, and you invite them to, to fall into the arms of the people behind them, right? So, so we, we like to do this kind of stuff with our staff because we want everybody to trust each other and staff. And, and so we, we did this this week and I don't know, for some reason we videoed it. I don't know why we would have done that, but we videoed it. And so we just kind of want to show you what this looks like if you're not familiar with the, the trust fall. So take a look at this. Hey, many of you out there, you know Daniel. Daniel just came on staff with us recently. And one of the things that we like to do with new staff is have a staff initiation moment. We, we haven't done this before. We haven't shown you these videos before, but we figured Daniel's new. We'll, we'll use this for today. Um, we want him to do a trust fall. We, we want Daniel to be able to trust us here at The Journey. And so, Daniel, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you to do something for us, okay? We, we've got people here. They're ready to catch you. All I, we need you to do is to fall. Are you ready to do that? Mm -hmm. All right. On the count of three, you're going to fall, and we've got you. One, two, three. <laughs> it didn't really work out the way we were expecting. Good thing we have workman's comp. Daniel was up here today doing his job, so he's, he's okay. Now, the idea is you fall backwards when you do this. We should have explained that a little bit better. You know, when I think about the trust fall, as we called it after Thursday, the trust fail, when we think about the trust fall, it really, a big part of it is trust, but I think there's something bigger there. It's really faith. I would call it the faith fall because here's this individual who's there, and their job is to have faith that the people back there are still going to be there when they fall backwards, right? You hope that their hands aren't down beside them. You hope they haven't walked away. There's this faith in things you can't see that are behind you that you're hoping they will catch you. And so faith is a very big deal for us. And, and we want faith in our relationships. We want that trust in our relationships. But I believe one of the places that we really seek out faith is when it comes to God. You, you probably know people that have faith. Uh, in fact, you probably say, you know, I don't have a whole lot of faith, but my grandparents, man, they had a lot of faith. My parents had a lot of faith. The sweet little old lady down the street, she has a lot of faith. There's probably reasons for that. Um, you know, they go to church all the time. 
They're the ones that take meals to people, you know, whenever someone needs them. Uh, they're the people that are always walking around singing hymns. Uh, you need encouragement. They, they, they don't give you some quote from some obscure author. They, they give you a Bible verse to follow. Uh, they're the people that, that when you walk in their house, and I had grandparents like this, and go in their living room and they had the family Bible. Do you remember the family Bibles? These things were like 125 pounds. Remember them? They're like this big, always open, like 72 font, point font or something in it so everybody could see it for six miles away. I mean, they had that. You're like, oh, you must have a lot of faith because you got a really big Bible, right? But, but it was bigger than that. It, it wasn't about that. It was about those moments in their life when there was tough times, when they're struggling, maybe when there's sickness or disease or death. And we would sit back and we'd watch this happen in front of us. We'd watch it happen to them. And yet we'd be the ones that would struggle with our faith, right? We'd be the ones like, how are you doing this? I mean, I, I see what, what's happened to your life. And if this were me, man, I would have lost my faith. I would be hurting. I'd have this incredible tension between myself and God. And yet you, somehow you still have this faith. How are you doing this? And so many times they're just kind of like, I don't know. The only thing I know is that if I fall, God is there to catch me. And so what does it look like for you and I to have that kind of faith? Because I believe that's the kind of faith God desires for you and for me. To have this kind of faith that no matter what's going on in our life, when we fall, God is there to catch us. We're going to be looking at an, an event in the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. This is something that happens between Jesus and this other gentleman, and uh, it's just a powerful, powerful story of faith. Matthew 8 is where we're going to spend our time. You can uh, open up your Bible if you have them. You can follow along on the Journey Church app. Uh, we'll put it up here on the screen. You can take notes on our program if you want to do that. But Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 5, here's what it says. It says, When Jesus returned to Capernaum, a Roman officer came and pleaded with him. Let me give you a little context of the story. We get some setting here, right? This is a, a town called Capernaum. It is a small fishing village on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. Probably about 1,500 people live there at this time. It, it became known as Jesus HQ, right? I mean, they didn't really call it Jesus HQ, but it really was Jesus' headquarters. Uh, it became his hometown. And so he would go there to rest and relax and kind of recoup from all the ministry work that he was doing. Um, also, five of his followers, five of his main disciples were from there. And so the people there, they knew Jesus. They knew who he was. They knew his entourage. They were very familiar with him. Well, in this context, in this place, in our event, we, we have this Roman officer who comes to see Jesus. Now, he's actually a centurion. He oversees a centuria, which would have been uh, a command of about 100 soldiers. And his job was, like many of you have experienced here or are experiencing now or getting ready to experience when you leave this place if you're in the military, uh, his job was to oversee this group of, of soldiers, to discipline them, to train them, to do all the admin work. It meant more pay, but also more headaches, right? And some of you exactly know what that is. And so that was his main job and his role. And so he comes up to have this conversation with, with Jesus. Now, Please understand that this wasn't one of those moments where you have this Jewish person, this Roman person coming together and, and everything is fine and dandy, like they're best friends, right? Because the Jewish people hated the Romans. They had invaded their country. They had taken over their nation. And this was land that was given to them by God. And so for the Jewish people, the Romans, they, they were the bad guys. And, and so you have this Roman officer who's coming up to Jesus more than likely, he's got a couple of bodyguards with him. 
Um, these Roman officers were, were always being attacked, uh, trying to be assassinated by these Jewish nationalists called the Zealots who would try to kill them. And so he's probably got these, these two bodyguards that are walking up with him to go see Jesus. I, and I kind of imagine the disciples are like, hey, Peter, you're in big trouble, buddy. What'd you do this time? And I, I, this is what the disciples would do. I, I'm sure they were giving Peter a hard time. Peter's probably sweating profusely about this. But that's not the reason he's there. He's not there to come and find Peter. He's there to come and see Jesus and to plead with Jesus because he needs some help. Look at verse 6. Lord, my young servant lies in bed, paralyzed and in terrible pain. So the officer's there not to arrest Peter, but something's going on in his personal life. He's got this servant who, from what we can tell, he cares about and loves. And this servant is paralyzed and in pain, and he's looking for some help. Now, again, I ask us all the time to put ourselves into the story uh, many times we read scripture and we just kind of read it peripherally. We just kind of read the words. We don't really think about what's going on here. Uh, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put yourself into the place of the disciples for a moment, okay? Um, when they hear these words from this Roman soldier, I'm guessing they're not sitting there thinking, oh, man, that's really bad. Man, we really feel so bad for this Roman soldier and for his servant. Man, we just, we just hope for healing for them. They're not thinking that. If you know a little bit about the disciples, they think Jesus is still going to be this earthly king. They're, they're still waiting for Jesus to take over the Roman Empire again and take over their land so they can have it again. And so I, I can kind of imagine that in their minds, they're like, well, good. I hope your servant dies. I, I hope whatever your servant have, you get, and you give it to all of your soldiers, and then you guys go back to Rome and give it to all the Romans, and you give it to the emperor, and everybody dies so we can get our land back. I mean, I, look, we would have thought the same thing, Okay. And so I, I got this feeling, this is kind of the, the image that they have or the feelings that they have. And as this Roman officer comes to Jesus looking for one thing, he's looking for help. Verse 7, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. What's Jesus' Jesus's response? He says, hey, here's the deal. I'll actually come to your house and heal him. And, and, and so again, back to the disciples, because they're a wacky group of guys. And, and they're, they're probably like, hey, die, 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 that kind of stuff. And they're thinking, yeah, Jesus is going to tell them exactly. And they're like, wait, what, what did Jesus just say? We're going to go to his house? No, we're going to be the ones that are going to die, not these people. And, and so again, there's this tension that's there between the Jews and the Romans. And I imagine these smirks that the disciples had now turned into question marks. Because Jesus says, no, we're going to come to your house. We're going to come to your house and heal your servant. Verse 8. But the officer said, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come into my home. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. The disciples were probably like, whew, great, we don't have to go there now. There's a couple things that we see that Jesus does here, um, or this officer does in regards to his response. First thing is he probably understands the Jewish culture, the traditions, the laws. And so he knows that it's not um, right, it's not part of the tradition for a Jew to enter a Gentile home because that would make them unclean. The Romans were great about this. They would come in, they would invade your country, they would take over. But then they start to learn a little bit about you because it made it easier to rule over you. And so they knew this tradition, they knew this law. And so that was probably part of the reason that, that this particular soldier says, hey, no, we're good, you don't need to come to my house. But I think the other reason was he's watched Jesus. Now, at first, I'm pretty sure he watched Jesus because he's been told, hey, um, we got a possible revolutionary in our midst there. You, you need to watch this guy because everywhere he goes, there's all these people that are following him. 
and they're listening to him. He may be getting ready to lead a revolution. I mean, again, this is part of the officer's job and his centurion's job to look out for this stuff. I think first, his views of Jesus and what he sees, they're all political. But then he notices something a little bit different. As he's watching this guy, he notices that he teaches differently than the revolutionaries do. Not only that, but he's watching him and he's healing people. People who are sick and diseased are getting up and they're better. He hears the stories. And so now things have really changed for him. This isn't about some guy who's going to be a revolutionary for the Jewish people. This is about some guy who has the power to heal others by what he says. So here's this officer who says, All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 9. I know this because I am under the authority of my superior officers. And I have authority over my soldiers. I only need to say go when they go or come and they come. And if I say that my slaves do this, they do it. He talks about authority. So he talks about the authority he's been given by the Roman um, military. And so he says, I can go tell my people, hey, I need you to go arrest this person. You know what they're going to do? They're going to arrest them. Hey, I need you to go invade this home. You know what they're going to do? They're going to invade them. Hey, I need you to go kill this person. You know what they're going to do? They're going to kill them. Anything I tell them to do, they're going to go do because I have this authority over them. I've been given this human authority by the Roman military to be able to do this. And so I say something, they make it happen. He's like, Jesus, you're different. Like, you don't tell people what to do and they go do it. You, you tell sickness to leave and sickness leaves. You tell disease to go away and it goes away. You tell people who haven't walked their whole life to walk and they get up and walk. I've never seen that kind of authority before. And no other human has that. Your authority is much different than the authority that I have. And so he sees that in Jesus. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Turning to those who were following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all Israel. Jesus first here, he commends the faith of this officer. He's like, man, I, I've never seen this kind of faith. This is an incredible, incredible faith. In fact, it's the first time in Scripture that we see where Jesus is amazed at the faith of a human being. That word amazed there means astonished, marveled, wonder. I mean, Jesus is just taken back by, by the faith that's there. But, but on the, in the same sentence, he also says this guy has incredible faith, but nobody in Israel has that same kind of faith. He's like, hey, guys, disciples, you don't have that kind of faith. Hey, anybody else that's around me, I've never seen that faith in you. He's even talking to the religious leaders. You religious leaders who say that you have faith, you don't have the kind of faith that this guy does. This guy has incredible and amazing faith. Skip on down to verse 13. Then Jesus said to the Roman officer, Go back home because you believe that it has happened. And the young servant was healed that same hour. And Jesus doesn't say, Here's four quick steps to having your servant be healed. He, he didn't say, if you follow these things, and you got to do these four steps, you got to do these four steps in order. Can't do one, four, three, and two. You got to do them in order. And if you do these things, then this healing is going to take place. He doesn't say that. You notice what he says here? He says, what you said and believe is going to happen. Because of your faith, your servant will be healed. Here is this officer who probably knows a little bit about God, but not a whole lot. And if he's a religious person, he's from following the Roman gods. He's not a follower of Jesus. And yet there's this incredible faith that he has in Jesus that brings about this healing in his servant. 
So how does this connect with you and I? What does this kind of faith look like for us? I want to share with us this morning three ideas of, of how we can make sure that we are moving towards this kind of big faith. And then I want to give you four real quick practical um, hacks that you and I can put together in our life to hopefully help us hack God and to build our faith. Here's idea number one. Idea number one is big faith is not about a big brain, okay? Big faith is not about a big brain. One of my favorite interactions with Jesus and the Pharisees comes out of John chapter 5, uh, verses 39 through 40. I'm going to read this out of what's known as the Message Bible. It's actually a paraphrase of, of Scripture. And Eugene Peterson, I think, puts this so well. Here's what, how he writes it. He says, and this is Jesus talking, You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me, and here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. I love this dialogue where it's not even dialogue. Jesus is just like, hey, here's the deal with you guys. And these are religious leaders, okay? So these Pharisees, these religious leaders, they had big brains. They had a, they had a ton of knowledge. To, to be in their role, you actually had to memorize what we call the Old Testament. You had to memorize the whole thing. You had to know the laws. You had to know the customs. You, you had to know all the rituals. You had to know everything. And here's Jesus who comes to him like, you guys, you're, you're stuck, right? You're, you're looking in the scripture. You're looking at the Bibles. You know the prophecies. You know all this stuff. Here's the deal. It all points to me. And yet, what are you doing? You're still trying to gain more knowledge. You're still trying to understand this better. He's like, you don't need to do that anymore. Here I am. I'm standing in front of you. All you got to do is start following me. Big faith is not about a big brain. And yet I think sometimes those of us who are followers of Christ, we tend to think very similarly to the Pharisees. We're like, man, if I gain more knowledge, if I know the Greek, if I know the Hebrew, if I just go deeper and deeper and deeper, I'm going to find some hidden truth that's going to change my life and, and I'll have this knowledge. And it's going, to, it's going to make me have this great big faith. But what ends up happening is we end up being like the Pharisees and we become more dependent on ourselves and our faith becomes about what we know more than it becomes about God. Kind of have a pet peeve with uh, some Christians. I call you Bible snobs. I haven't really experienced it here. I've experienced it in a couple other places. Here's the deal with Bible snobs. Bible snobs will be having a conversation with you and you'll be like, hey, you know, like it says in Zephaniah 3, 5. And you're like, yeah. And you just wait for them to quote it, right? Like, give me the quote, because I haven't read Zephaniah and maybe ever. But, um, you know, it's like, what is it? It's got to be really good if you brought it up. And, and they never tell you what it says, right? They just throw it out there, and then they kind of change the conversation. And you're left to think, wow, Zephaniah 3.5 must be really good. They can't even speak it into existence. And so that's like this issue that I have. I, I worked with someone who did that. They were always throwing out these scripture mentions and talking about all these but they never explained it. And we would all sit there as a staff and we were all afraid, right? We were like, yeah, we know exactly what you're talking about. We're like, we don't have no clue. Afterwards, we're all looking it up like, oh, now that all makes sense. That 35 minutes after that all makes sense to us now. It didn't make sense before. But, um, but, but we think if, if we know stuff and we think that other people are supposed to know it too, right? And so we get to this place where we just want to gain as much knowledge as possible. And I think sometimes it's just to impress other people. This is why seminaries scare me. I know people want to go to seminary and I don't have anything against seminaries. But um, sort of the joke in pastoral circles is not you're going to seminary, you're going to cemetery. Um, it's because a lot of faith gets lost there. If your faith isn't strong when you go to seminary, when you start really leaning into knowledge and scripture and what's going on, 
So many people go to seminary and they actually lose their faith. And it's because they become so knowledgeable that their knowledge is taken over and they become more dependent on their knowledge than they do on their faith. Many times we think that we've got to be like the Pharisees. We've got to have this incredible knowledge that if somebody asks us a question, we've got all the answers. But big faith is not about a big brain. This Roman officer, he didn't have any knowledge. He probably knew very little, if any, of the scriptures. And yet he still had this incredible big faith in Jesus. Here's idea number two. Big faith is not about perfection. Not only were the Pharisees pretty intelligent and smart and had all this knowledge, but they also expected everybody around them to live a certain way. And so their, their job was kind of to call you out. When you weren't doing what you were supposed to be doing, if you were breaking the law, there wasn't any grace there. It's like, you broke the law, here's what you've got to do. Very, very little grace. And so their idea was that you had to live this, this perfect life. Again, let me, let me go back to those of us that are followers of Christ. Sometimes that's the way we act. We, we think we have to live this perfect life. And, and maybe for you, you've gotten to this place and you've thrown out the TV, right? You know, there's, there's no internet. You don't read any Christian magazines. Uh, you carry the KJV Bible around. You think that's the only translation, the King James Version. And so you read Scripture, you read the Bible, and you make your own interpretations. The struggle is, or the problem is, what we do is we begin to take those interpretations that we have, that we really haven't dealt with beyond ourselves, and we start to take those and say, hey, everyone else around us needs to live the way that I believe you're supposed to live. Because this is based on what I know, or the knowledge I have, or or this life that I think that you're supposed to live. And look at ourselves and think, I'm going to live this pious life. And, And yet we thrust that on others around us. Well, you can't say that. You can't do that. You can't go there. You can't read that. And so we began to throw on this, these, these perfections that we think are right onto those around us. And so this big faith is it's so far from about being perfect. Again, another area that I find this is um, so true is in social media. Um, you know, I've got my weird people I follow in organizations, but I also got Christian groups and, and people I follow, pastors, authors, organizations, nonprofits. And, um, and on Twitter specifically, uh, I'll follow and just kind of read what people are posting. And, you know, someone will share something that's going on in their life, maybe something they're learning, some little piece of theology or something that's happening in their life or something they're kind of struggling with. Can I tell you the worst people in the world for responding are Christians? Like, I read the threads, and here's my advice. Don't read the threads. Like, even this morning I was reading, somebody had posted something about something going on in their church, and this person had a kind of rough past in the, in the past. And uh, for some reason I read the threads, and like two or three people pounced on that. I'm like, oh my gosh. It's like, you don't know the context. We forgot to ask how, what the context is, right? We don't know how to do that anymore. Like, hey, can you give me some context for what you wrote or what's going on? Or hey, We don't know how to answer or ask clarifying questions anymore. It's like a lost art. We, we just pounce, and Christians specifically are like lions that haven't eaten in three weeks. And so somebody writes something, it's like, rawr, they just devour. It's like gladiators in the Colosseum fighting to the death. I'm like, how do we get to this place? Why is this happening? Well, it's because I think I'm perfect. That's because the person who read that thinks they're perfect. And what they want to do, they want to say, hey, this is what perfection looks like. This is not my interpretation of perfection. This is really what perfection is. And so I want to now take what I know. I want to now, now take that perfection that I have, and I'm going to project that on you. 
And instead of knowing that person or having any kind of empathy or sympathy or, or just asking questions, it all of a sudden becomes this battle of, of perfection. And here's one of the things I want to let you know about the Journey Church. Um, we are a church made up of and for imperfect people, okay? If you walk through these doors and you think you're going to find the perfect church, this isn't it. I'll just go ahead and tell you. Don't even waste five weeks here, right? Just go. If you're looking for that, it's not going to work. We're not perfect. Uh, and we readily tell you we're not perfect. Our staff's not perfect. I'm not perfect. Our leadership's not perfect. All of our coaches we have and all of our ministry areas are not perfect. And you're definitely not perfect. So we know we've got a lot of... It was a joke, guys, okay? It was just... It was just anyway, we're not, we're not perfect people. And we know that. We're imperfect people who are trying to find our faith in a perfect God. And that's what the kind of church we want to be. So if you're looking for the perfect church, we're not it. If you're looking for a group of imperfect people trying to live for this perfect God, we're definitely the place for you. See, a big... Big faith is not about perfection. It's not about perfection at all. It's about imperfection. And we find that with the officer. He's an imperfect person. And yet, what do we find? We find he has this incredible, big faith. Here's idea number three. Big faith is about a big dependency on God. If we go back to verse 8 in Matthew 8, it says, Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. Just say the word from where you are, and my servant will be healed. He comes to Jesus pleading for help. Now think about that for a moment. Here's a Roman officer who probably has access to some pretty good medicine, maybe some good doctors. He, he can get all kinds of help, and maybe he's gone there. But here he is at the very end. He's like, I've got nowhere else to turn. I've got nowhere else that I can go to. And so what does he do? He depends on God through Jesus. He's like, this is kind of my last resort. Jesus, all you have to do is say the words. Say the word, and my servant will be healed. Maybe some of the questions that we ask or we think about are questions like this. How do you deal with tragedy, pain, hurt, or bad news in your life? How do you deal with your questions about God? How do you seek out those answers? How do you get your faith that you see, or how do you get faith that you see in other people like we talked about a little bit earlier? How can you grow your faith in God? How can you be fully dependent on God? Sometimes the answers to those questions come um, when we're in those moments of last resort, when the only thing that's left is for us to fully be dependent on God. Because sometimes we don't seek out those answers when we're kind of going through life and, and we're focused on our knowledge and we're focused on perfection. Sometimes we, we don't seek those answers out or look for those answers until the moment where we finally said, I've almost given up. And God is all that I have left. Big faith is about a big dependency on God. And this Roman officer had big faith, which meant he had to have this big dependency on God. He had to believe that Jesus was going to do a miracle, and Jesus did just that. As we think about this event in the life of Jesus, as we kind of think through these ideas of what big faith isn't like and what it does look like, 
there's some practical hacks I think that we can put into play for us when we struggle with faith. I know in a room like this, some of us are just kind of beginning the faith journey. And, and so you, you may be like the officer. You're just kind of like, I'm not sure about this, but I'm going to try this out. And others of us, maybe our faith is, is pretty strong and we've been a follower of Jesus. And we, we have that kind of faith like we talked about a little bit earlier with those people we know in our life. But wherever we may be, there's always something about growing our faith. And so I want to give you these four practical hacks. Here's the first one. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Read Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is known as the faith chapter. And so if you go back and you read Hebrews 11, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find all these stories of faith. Section after section. It talks about these people, most of them in the Old Testament. It talks about their faith and the faith they had and what God did and the amazing faith that, that changed who they were. Go back and read Hebrews 11. It's not a long chapter. Why don't you read it for the next seven days, every day. Just take a moment, read Hebrews 11. And then here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Read Hebrews 11, but then as you read each section, maybe a week from now, go back and read a section, then go back in the Old Testament, go look at their story. Go, go read about their faith, because here's what you're going to find. Their faith was in the same place that many of our faiths are right now. They were struggling. They were like, we don't know what to do, and kind of losing faith in God. And here's what God didn't do. God didn't say, hey, you've lost your faith. I'm out. I I'm going to go find someone else. No, no, God jumps in and is like, hey, I'm going to strengthen your faith. faith. I, I'm going to show you what faith truly looks like. Go back and read Hebrews 11 and read those stories of faith. Here's hack number two. Hack number two says, God, grow my faith. This is what this means. If you're struggling in your faith right now for whatever reason, this is your prayer every day. God, grow my faith. Amen. That's it. You don't need to pray anything else. Just pray this prayer over and over again. God, grow my faith. God, grow my faith. Maybe it just becomes a mantra for you uh, throughout the day. God, grow my faith. God, grow my faith. When we start to ask God to grow our faith, it's crazy what God will do. God will grow our faith. And sometimes those challenges will actually become a little bit bigger in that. Because God's going to say, hey, let's, let's see where your faith really is. And so pray that prayer over and over again. God, grow my faith. Here's the third hack I would give you. Connect. We, uh, we, we talk about small groups here at The Journey and how important they are. Um, depending on your church, some churches would say, hey, small groups are all about your spiritual growth. Uh, and I believe that that happens in there. I will tell you the reason that I love small groups and why I think they're so important, they're about relationships. They're about people connecting with other people. It's about you and, and myself doing life with others. And so when we talk about connecting and being in a small group, here's what I love about groups. You get to hear where people are on their faith journey. You get to hear people say, hey, let me tell you what happened in my life. Let me, let me tell you what I faced, and let me tell you how my faith in God helped me through that. See, sometimes the reason that our faith grows isn't because we're sitting there praying that prayer, hey, hey, God, grow my faith. It's because we hear the story of how God grew somebody else's faith. And we're like, hey, this is actually legit. This is real. Now I can pray this prayer, hey, God, grow my faith. And, and God does that. But we get to hear the stories of other and their, their faith journeys. And some of those stories are like, hey, I don't really know if I have a whole lot of faith. Great, wonderful. We're glad you're in this group. Be a part of this. Build these relationships. Hear the stories and see what happens. And so connection with other people is so important in our faith journey. And then hack number four, this is very specific for some of us, is baptism. It's baptism. Maybe you haven't taken that step, and I can honestly tell you one of the biggest steps of faith you can take is to take that first step of baptism. 
and to say, hey, I want to be all in. And maybe you're like, hey, I've been following Jesus, but I haven't taken this step. Or, or maybe you're like, you know, I, I'm just at the beginning place of, of following Jesus, and, and I, I want to take the step of baptism. There's no greater act of faith for us than to be baptized and to give our life to Christ. Doesn't mean you're perfect. And maybe you know very little about the Bible, but really don't care. It's about that act of faith that allows you to begin to build your faith as you grow in what you know and what you hear and live in this life that follows who Jesus is in our life today. When you put these hacks into play, it can change our lives. It can grow our faith. It can make us different. My question is, do you and I want to be like the Pharisees and say, hey, we've got it all figured out. I got all this knowledge. I'm living this, this pious, perfect life. That's not faith at all. Or do we want to be like this officer who, who comes in and has very little knowledge and is living this imperfect life, but, but Jesus has done something around him, and he sees it, and he says, that's, that's the kind of faith I want. That's who I want to follow. See, I think that's the kind of faith you and I need. Not the faith of the Pharisees, but the faith of that officer. And if we can have that kind of faith, God can do amazing things in our lives. All right, right now, we take communion together as a church. And as we do that this morning, it is a reminder of our faith. It is a reminder of, of God's incredible love for you and for me. That God said, hey, I love you so much. I'm sending my son to this earth for you, to live for you, to teach you how to live. He's going to die, but he's going to come back to life so that you can have faith. So in those tough times in life when you're struggling, you'll know that I'm still here. And I still care about you and I still love you. All I need you to do is follow Christ. Right now we're going to stand. Band's going to be leading us in a song called Make Room. And you may not be familiar with the song. As it's being sung, feel free to jump in. The words will be up on the screen. There's this phrase that keeps coming up and over and over, and it says, make room for two. Making room for two. Making room for two. And that means between you and God. Are we making room for two? At